and fade out. Oh my god. I did it. I did it. This is going to be the best script since like Gone with the Wind. It's going to put me on the map and I'm going to have a moderately sized house with a decent car. Yes! All right. Hey, Dave. How you doing? Hey, man. How's it going? Good, good. Hey, do you mind if I plug in my phone? Uh, no, do it real! Oh, my God. What, what, oh, my God. What it's happened? gone. It's gone. What do you mean what it's gone? What were you doing? Why would you put that in there? I had like 1% on my phone, and I was mid, like, level 150 in Candy Crush. Candy Crush? Dude, have you played the game? It's like crack. You, my script is gone. I didn't say with the S and the control S. You didn't save? No, I didn't save. What's wrong with you? Do you want a hug? Yeah. Welcome to Nerds on History. I am your stand-in co-host, Dave McGuire. And I am Brian Moriarty, your regular co-host. Right. Eric Brickmont is on a break. We said he was working really hard. He needed some time off. That's totally cool. So Dave offered to sub in. Uh, for a couple episodes, we were talking last week about uh, uh, acting and talking about and how it changed so much in the 20th century and talked a lot about the process for acting. Right, right, right. Right, right. And uh, well, first off, so we're going to kind of change gears and we're going to talk a little bit about writing this time instead. But before we do that, I just want to know, how you doing, man? I'm good. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. I'm uh, tired. Yeah? Yeah. I'm, I'm, besides doing neuronomy in my regular job, I'm... I'm doing another job, so I'm super busy, man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. at least you have good material to work with, right? That's true. That's yeah. true. Yeah. I could always pretend that, like, I'm Christian Bale or something driving. I don't know where I was going. Like, the Tumblr? I don't know. God, <laughs> I wish my car was the Tumblr. Yeah, it'd be pretty cool. Except you'd only get, like, seven miles per gallon because that thing is... Whatever. Yeah. That car is awesome. And it runs on jet fuel. Uh no joke. It totally does. legal. Yeah. Uh, so m- many people don't know. So and we talked about this last time too. Dave and I met way back in college uh, doing acting together. We were doing a theater. Uh-huh. Uh, but we also did a couple short films together. Uh, I acted in a film that he wrote and directed. And he, I directed him in a film that he wrote <laughs> uh, Yes. as well. So Dave actually has got a background as a writer. Yes, I do. Yeah. I don't know if I would call myself a professional. I, I'd love to. Yeah. It's an aspiration of yours, nonetheless. Right. Aspiration. Whereas your aspiration is becoming a uh, a theater. An actor-director kind an of actor thing. An actor-director thing. Yeah. Uh, writing is my aspiration. Sure. And I can identify with that. I first, when I was thinking, oh, I want to do directing, I wanted to do kind of the writer-director route. So, like, I mean, I, I've been in some for another writing since I was 15, and but... I just found that I didn't have the discipline for it. Like writing takes an incredible amount of relaxation, an incredible amount of just repetitive, you got to do it every day kind of thing. Yeah. And I found that I enjoyed the storytelling process, but I also found that I can craft a storytelling process as an actor and as a director. I don't have to be the one ready making the words. Right, right. So yeah. I oftentimes have found that it's good to collaborate on a project where we uh, were not, I'll say, well, maybe we can tweak this here or there. Right. But I'm just not the kind of person who fleshes things out. It's just not my not my strength. Yeah, and I mean, I've 
God, I mean, I, yeah, we did uh, we did a couple of short films a couple of years ago. God, I think Brain Freeze was... That was about five, six years ago. Uh, yeah, yeah, long then, time ago. And then Signed by the X was about three years ago. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it, it's... Um, you're right. It does take a lot of discipline. Uh, those two probably weren't as much discipline just because I think we kind of pounded, or at least I know I pounded out Brain Freeze pretty quickly um, just because that was before like I knew to care. Like I would just be like, I can put anything on the page and it would be great. And, you know, we, we made it work. And we, because it was us doing it, you write, I mean, we knew that we were going to be the ones to do it. So we could kind of, we can kind of change things around. Yeah, we, yeah. we could kind of half ass it a bit on the, on the writing part of it because we knew, like, okay, when we got there, <clears throat> nine times out of 10, someone's going to come up with a better line and then we'll just kind of go with that. Which is true for your web series that you wrote, Donovan and Sims. Too like yeah. when we were doing the scenes for it, we oftentimes would just kind of do an ad lib, and oftentimes the ad lib would be the thing that we ended up using. Yeah, I mean, I think my motto <clears throat> when I do things like that, and then if someone actually wants to do to produce it or make it, is I've as long as you've got the subtext of what the line is trying to say, if you have a better way of saying it, go for that. Like, yeah, whatever's most as Stanislavski would have said, uh, go with what feels comfortable. Right. And that's, I am the Stanislavski of writing. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> wow. Um, wow, Dave. Sorry. It was really hard to get into the room with my big head. It was, there had to be a lot of, a lot of butter, a lot of grease. What? But, okay. Just I'll, slick just, it in. Just, just, okay. I'm not going to touch that one. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, it, and I think ultimately what it comes down to is, like I said, is that really, when you're talking about writing, you're talking about directing or talking about acting, you're really talking about uh, storytelling. Right. And while the actor is the person who becomes the embodiment of the story, the writer is the one who is actually... Who creates the world. Creates the world, exactly. Yeah. And creates it on paper and creates kind of the blueprint for what becomes What you film, see on the screen. Yeah. Or the play, the... Or, yeah, on web television, series, you web series. Even the cold opens that we do for our show are, I mean, they're not written in the sense that they're... They're not scripted in the, in the traditional sense, but, but they are written. Yeah. Absolutely. We do kind of rehearse it. We come up with the bits and we work out the kinks and we just... We do a more of an improvisational style of it, but nevertheless, there's structure and we've, we've kind of figured it out. So we thought it'd be interesting, since we talked about 20th century acting, to really talk about, well, let's talk about screenwriting. And we're going to kind of keep it as a flexible topic because there's a lot you can talk about. You can talk about the screenplay, which is a relatively new concept for writing. You also can talk about the screenwriter and mm-hmm. how they they have changed they because they've only been on the scene for a little less than a little over 100 years as well yeah around 1900 uh yeah 1901 yeah. around the time that movies really started to to be materialized into a, a legitimate thing yeah the moment movies became <clears throat> scripted the moment the movies became these things that they wanted to plan out other right. than the early testings of people just recording life you needed to have some yeah, sort of... Yeah, watching the man sneeze or watching right, the exactly. man go outside. Those are those, those are people just legitimately playing around with the technology. Right. The moment you start to see storytelling happen is the moment you get to the actual process of writing a script mm-hmm. of some kind. And there's a couple ways you could have done this. I mean, yes, you had a lot of theater writers who were experimenting with going to film. But nevertheless, film had ended up needing to have its own process. Right. How things, because of the needs of the technology. Right. Right. Uh, when it's theater, it is one straight performance from beginning to end, mm-hmm. and so and yeah, it's generally within one se- one setting, right? Exactly, uh, which plays to one of Aristotle's uh, ideas about space and 
location and all that stuff. But nevertheless, I mean, the markings in the theatrical script are very different. You have a little bit of notation of saying where one scene happens, which really, and a scene can be a sequence of scenes. It can be an actual quick little scene. Mm -hmm. Um, There's something called French scenes where really it's one long scene that's like 20, 30 pages, but the scenes, quote unquote, change when an actor and a character uh, enters or enters. Exits, yeah. Exactly. Which is very common in 20th century theater. There's a lot of French scenes that are The written. new scene starts when this guy enters the room. And then, yeah, because the, what that's, in, what that's uh, indicating is that the, the subject of the scene has now changed. Right. Right. Because if you and I are here, we're having a scene right now, we're doing a podcast. You know, if Sarah or Roxy were to enter into the scene, you know, now the scene has changed. Now we're into a new scene because now we've introduced Roxy or Sarah. Right. The situations are going to change. Exactly. And now they're bringing their own baggage and they're bringing their own situation. Exactly. And so really what you get is when they have this word that's scene. Scene's a very flexible word. But really what you're having with the scene is you're really talking about this one, for lack of a better word, sequence or with this one moment yeah. really this one macroscopic moment that communicates a thought mm-hmm. right um and we'll kind of talk about how that how, how is evolved. trying to adopt yeah that later on too um yeah and ultimately what it comes down to is just so we under- so that our audience understands the basic format of dramatic storytelling mm-hmm. is you you have to have action of some kind and we're not talking about arnold schwarzenegger you know, with a Get you the chop now. exactly Go! blowing up, you know, or things like that. We're talking about just people have to do something, right? Generally, generally, if you want to tell a good story, it's it's usually about a singular person, either man or woman, or you know, if you want to get into the Pixar realm, in an, an inanimate object and or insect, a protagonist of some a protagonist kind. of some sort who has to go through some sort of transformation. They start off with some sort of flaw that is keeping them in this ordinary world and through the actions of this movie and through the people that they meet and the B stories that they go through and all that jazz, they learn to fight and overcome this fatal flaw of theirs to now beat the antagonist, whatever that is, you know, the villain of the piece, whatever that, whoever that might be. And then by beating that villain, they have overcome their, their, their inner issues they've overcome their external issues and now they are a better person for having gone through yeah. that and now they're ready to go into this new world that and that's pretty much as that's joseph a very campbell, truncated version of it yeah i mean as as joseph campbell would call it that's the the trope of the hero's journey right where they go on the quest for self-discovery and they learn something about themselves and they they they've changed as part of that process that that's not the only kind of story you can tell you can also tell a story of self-destruction there's often times where a character doesn't change and they just get caught up in their own flaws and they... I.e. leaving Las Vegas. Right, exactly. And But really what you're talking about is now what's the intention of that story, right? Uh, I think that speaks very heavily to uh, the style of writing. Is it, Yes, you can have these French scenes, you can have these sequences, but really what you're ultimately trying to do is you're trying to, make an, you're trying to set forth an intention that is played out through characters... Uh, right and circumstances basically. and what those characters do are dictated by what the script says you know whether or not the actors say the words that the scriptwriter has said the actions and the scenery and the place and the subtext and what they're feeling 
the actors are embodiment of that and they're they're portraying it in a way that they feel truthful to them and to the character but they wouldn't have that moment of realization of what is truthful if it wasn't for what what's on the page correct and so when you're when you're the writer you you do all this work to establish a world ground rules uh and you have to basically establish this form of logic really that the the story follows mm -hmm. you right? have to set rules for the world like if you're like for instance we mentioned last week guardians of the galaxy is a is a space adventure movie you know so there are rules to that world that have to be applied and stated within expositionary dialogue in order for the audience to accept what's going on around them. Right. You know, you can't just be like, oh, Peter Quill's a guy that's like in space and he's on a spaceship. And then all of a sudden he's like, oh, by the way, I can step outside my spaceship and nothing happens to me in space because that's what's happening in this right. world. Like you can't just make stuff up along the way. Like there are there are set things that have to that you have to abide by. Correct. And you have to have things that are justified and explained. Exactly. Justification is a big thing there. And to mention Guardians of the Galaxy, since you did, uh, you, there's a couple of key moments in the first five minutes of that movie that set up everything about Peter Quill. Uh, even his costume, which is not very super heroic, just it looks more like uh, a mishmash of uh, Nathan Fillion's character on Firefly, Mal and uh, Han Solo a little bit. It's kind of those those two together. But you're right; he has gadgetry. He has a mask that lets him. You find out that this mask is also an air seal that lets him go into space at times. Uh, it's kind of pretty cool. Like, he's got some neat tech, but it also serves a story, as we find out later on in that movie, without right. spoiling anything. Um, and so what we really thought would be interesting to do is, so we talked a little bit about the basis for why writing is what it is. We want to talk about, well, how did that, how do we translate that on screen? How do we write that out in a way where it makes sense? And how has that changed right. from the beginning? Right. Right? Because pretty much when you had silent film, and you have action, but you don't have dialogue. Well, that's actually a misconception. You yeah. know, they 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 had to have dialogue, right? Because they're 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 writing in those text blocks in between images of action and those actors are saying something. Now whether or not they're saying the full speech that they're giving Probably not. Yeah, but oftentimes they weren't. They were just improvising and they were putting the script on page later. But at least whoever it was that was creating it was probably telling them, okay, you're you, you're likely going to say something like this. Right. You know, and then go off of that. The director kind of sets the scene and says, right. So you, and I mean, yeah. if we really want to get into it, I mean, the, the actual script writing started in a, from about 1896 to about 1901. Um, that there was not an actual script writing per se where you have, you know, interior something, you know, here's the location, here's the time of day. It was more of writing down sequences. And so basically it's what we would contemporarily call a shot list where you've got, okay, the first thing we're going to see on the screen is going to be right. man wakes up and he put, you know – You'd throws like, his feet over the side of the bed. Right. And so, I mean, a good example is like the train robbery. The Great train, train robbery. robbery. The first Well, actually, that that, that that is a good example, but they, that one goes into more detail. Oh, okay. So, like, the this website that I'm on, which is called uh, www.screenplayology.com, which is actually a really cool uh, one-pager blog that kind of goes into a lot of uh, depth of the, 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 the evolution of screenwriting, basically states that at first it was – um, you know, uh, a, a series of sequences, just one sentence sequences that were just kind of saying, okay, we're going to see this to this, this to this. 
Um, what Brian's referencing is true, is that the Great Train Robbery did a similar situation to that, but then they went into more depth, and they started to create slug lines. Now, slug lines are the things where, that you see that are called interior, or abbreviated now, which is INT, or exterior, EXT. And that's telling the, the reader, okay, we're inside a building, we're outside a building, we're in Mel's Diner, we're outside Mel's right. Diner. the slug line, um, exactly. And then, <clears throat> then underneath that, for the Great Train Robbery, is you have... A description of, okay, here's the action that's taking place. There's no dialogue for the Great Train Robbery, but there's action that says, okay, two masked guys uh, enter and compel the operator to get the signal block to stop uh, the approaching train and make him write a fictitious order to the engineer to take water at this station. Um, so basically, you know, it's, it's telling the people who are going to be making this movie, okay, here are the shots we're going to get. Right, like it, it's more or less in a paragraph form telling you, okay, we need to get a shot of them approaching the train, right. them on getting on the train, doing this, doing that. But it's in a more, it's more contemporary looking than than say just a list of sequences, right? Which is with the original. And the original pretty much had each scene name, for lack of a better word, not like scene one, scene two. They they would give kind of the scene, right? The, the name of the like after the tone, right? Like exactly, like the theft or the something. And then you're right. Basically, it's a numbered list. Mm-hmm. Person A walks in and sits down. Person B uh, offers him a cup of coffee, so on and so forth. Right. And then from there, it starts to evolve. I mean, the reason why they were doing this, and the thing is, is that there weren't writers per se. There were people who wanted to help with this. So they generally, prior to them doing this you know, sequence writing, it would be a lot of members of the crew Basically, it would be like what people on YouTube are doing today, right? They are literally getting together with a group of friends and they're going, hey, man, what are we going to do today? And they're like, um, why don't we do a shot of you jumping off the roof into the pool? Okay, great. What are we going to get to kind of build a story around that? Yeah. And I mean, that's generally what well, what's happening prior to the actual yeah. sequence being written out is that people are just kind of like on the fly creating it. And they're now they're thinking to themselves, that's wasting a lot yeah. of money. Yeah. Right, we have somebody supplying money to us. We need to be able to right. to to not waste it. So let's have a, let's have an idea or a plan prior to to going right. into this. And the goal is you establish an order basically, and you're taking right. the order that's in your head and putting it on paper so it makes sense for everybody. Right, because you want to tell a, a coherent story. Right. The Great Train Robbery is about 1903. Then we fast forward to about 1914, and that's when we're looking at Satan McAllister's heir, written by C. Gardner Sullivan and Thomas H. Uh, I can't pronounce his last name. Ince. Ince. Yeah, um, Thomas Ince is an interesting character. I'll talk to you about him in a second. This is where we start to see that they're getting a little bit more. In, like now, now the screenwriting starting to become a little bit more formatted than what what we're seeing now, right? Because now you have the slug line, but now you're starting to see close ups. Now you're starting to see that there's actually starting to to be some delineation of camera work, and 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 basically it's it's the writer saying, okay, this is how I want the movie to be seen. Like this is what I want the audience to see. Um, and so you're seeing things like close up of Satan and Bob and Hattie at, at, at the uh, schooner and you see, you know, description of uh, Satan is doing this and, and then it even actually says insert title, which honestly, if you really think about it, that is such a revolutionary thing to have done is to say insert title because we do that now, right? When we want to write a script and we say insert title card, like, uh, think of clerks, right? right? The beginning of clerks, most of the sequences, uh, that he goes through, there are there are title cards that kind of relay what that sequence is going to be about. Right. Um, to do this in 1914 is huge. To yeah. to tell them that you, that this is where you're going to slap in the title card for the for the dialogue. That's such a revolutionary thing to have done. Can we take a second and take, go on a quick tangent about Thomas Ince? Sure. He 
was actually very fundamental in the early film era. Uh, he was a writer, producer, director, did almost 600 films in the silent film era up through the teens and twenties. Uh, he, he actually kind of started the idea of, he wasn't the first studio, but he kind of set the idea of a movie studio concept. Right. Now he was the one who built his studio in Culver city, which is the unofficial, actually really it's the official capital of the movie industry. A lot of people don't know that people think it's Hollywood, but it's not. Um, and now fact, it's Hollywood. The lot that he built his studio on is the lot that MGM studios was built on that Sony eventually bought. And now MGM is back on today. That lot is legendary. Uh, my my grandma lives like uh, a quarter mile from that too. It's unbelievable. But um, Ince was an interesting fellow too because aside from setting a format for screenwriting and aside from kind of developing this whole process for studios, he was also kind of a womanizer. Uh, and you started fooling around. Shocking. Yeah, I know. And he, I mean, he made it made notable contributions. He was considered the father of the western uh, in the early film era, um, and he was married to Eleanor Kershaw, but. Um, he, like I said, he was known for, for fooling around. Uh, and what he was also known for doing is he was friends with the famous newspaper publisher, William Randolph Hearst. Now, Randolph, William Randolph Hearst had made a lot of friends in the film industry. His whole castle, San Simeon, which he placed near uh, Paso Robles, basically. It's about halfway between uh, Northern California and L.A., it was oftentimes the hangout place because the people from L.A. who were doing films could drive up there and spend the weekend. So he had these big, lavish parties. And one time, uh, they're on his yacht in uh, the Pacific Ocean. And uh, turns out, we find out that Ince has been fooling around with his uh, with his with with Hearst's mistress, Marion Davies. And we will never know the exact details of what happened, what's pretty much commonly accepted at this point is that Hearst, in a fit of anger, pulled out a gun and murdered Ince and pretty much shot him dead. And uh, the body was never recovered. They just know that he didn't come back from that that yacht trip. <laughs> so. Um, I'm going to say that Hearst did it. Probably. Uh, just seeing how Hearst has been throughout history... And also seeing how his He's grandfather, like he is a mogul, and, mogul versus and mogul, how actually. mogul his grandfather has, and how ruthless his grandfather was himself, yeah. by being in the the you know the Deadwood area and, and yeah. all that in the Black Hills. I'm gonna say he did. Yeah, pull the gun out and shoot him. Right. Did yeah. the girl survive? That's my question. Did, did Mary Davis it? survived? Absolutely. I mean, I think their relationship was was you no know, permanently uh, changed after that. What you mean? She didn't forgive him. Right. God. Uh, there's actually a great movie about this. It's called The Cat's Meow that features uh, th- this whole story taking place, the whole story of what happened this weekend. Mary Davis is interesting because she wasn't just... I mean, again, Hearst was also married too. So he was her, uh, you know, master. I don't know what's, what's the word. Uh, she was his mistress. So um, it, it's kind of naive to think that she, maybe she didn't have other people on the side too. She was all, There was also... She had a thing with Charlie Chaplin at some point or so this movie postulates he's the one who gets to do the stepping out not 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 her yeah Brian. so fun little fact the guy the guy who helped format the the modern screenplay uh was murdered brutally in the pacific ocean continuing back to, to the main topic there's no I, uh, we have no I, segue i, I don't point. know <laughs> just like lost inst was the old format got lost. I know. Uh, <laughs> Don't even try to I tried so hard. Just, just go with it. Um, I mean, basically, 
there's a misconception. I think we can kind of jump into sound as as talkies start to become more prevalent. 1927 was a big year, right? Because you had the jazz singer coming out. Oh my god! And it, I, and I, I I know we've said it on the the film podcast, and I'm sure we mentioned it here. Uh, but the jazz singer is such an amazing movie. Um, not not even for story. Like it, it's great when you finally see him talk. For the first time, like he, he sings and you're like, oh, that's so typical. Yeah. And then he turns around and he goes, what'd you think of me, mommy? And like the actress playing that, that part is so just befuddled by what to do. Cause she's like, I, do I talk? It picks up my voice. Like, I don't know what to say. Like, this is awkward. Like she legitimately is just speechless. Like if you watch it, she's just sort of like, ha ha ha. Oh, you. And she's just like, just shut up. Leave me alone. Yeah, like stop it. Like you, you take yeah. your time. And, and it was stunning to the audience too, because at this point in time, they had seen music synced to film before, but they'd never seen the dialogue. screen talk to them. Exactly, and that was just like. And if you want to see a great movie that talks about that transition from the silent era into the talkies, uh, go see The Artist. Um, mm-hmm. That's a great film that that just. Is such a love letter to that, but not even looking at the love letter to the to the silent movies. It's just what what did those people do? What did they go through? Sure, you know, there's and, a lot of silent film actors who could not. They, make they the lost it. They because, lost their gigs. Yeah, it's you know, very it, sad. It yeah. is. It's so very sad because they they, you know, they 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 lost their livelihood mm-hmm. because some of them sounded awful. Yeah, just or or sometimes because they were theater actors. The way they they talked was so over the top that it didn't feel natural right. anymore, which plays back to their last episode when we were talking about acting. Um, so now that you've got this sound stuff, now now the writer has now the now the writer has more to play with because now it's like we hear and you know we're, we're we we hear the music playing or like this ominous music plays in the background as such and such. Right. You happens. don't have to write for sound. Like, right, you know, if you're it's, a, it's a blessing and a curse because it's right. like now you're just like, oh, I get to more play with it. It's like, oh right. crap, now there's more that I have to think about. But not only that, but you have to like, you have to. Like, they always talk about in the screenwriting classes like making the sound come come to life, you know, or really giving it richness. Like you've got to use the correct words to make it pop. Exactly. Like if you if you're doing like a uh, a, a, a thriller, you know, and there's the psycho killer who's out outside, and you've locked yourself in your room. No, if you don't hear, you know, if you just write down, we hear the killer's footsteps as he approaches the door. That is very pedestrian, right? And I mean, it communicates the thought, but it doesn't create any sense of tone or stakes. And when you're trying to sell your script, yeah. you want to be able to, you you want, the, the purpose of, of scripts now, I know we're jumping ahead a bit, is that as you're writing it, your intention is to grab the reader. Right. Much like any author of a book. You know, any Twain, any, you know, Stephen, uh, King. Stephen King. I mean, those authors, they, they, they use words to be able to, to grab you and make you sure. sit down for a thousand right. pages. And as a parallel, if you were to change that to say, uh, the the sound of the killer's footsteps is deafening against the hardwood floors. Right, that, that, that paints a certain picture. Exactly. You know, and or something like with a thriller, you'd probably want to use staccato movements or staccato sentences, meaning right. like, you know, the creak. And then, you know, correlate that with like creak. She starts to breathe heavily. Creak, creak. You know, her, her breathing increases because now you're building that tension of like right. the footsteps are getting closer and so on and so forth. So, right. Um, you know, so so now that now that sound is such a uh, now that sound is playing a part in it. Now now we're having to 
to play ball. And now now we're having to, to, to incorporate that in there. And that changes the format of the <clears throat> it script does. as well. Yeah, because now, now, now we're starting to get into kind of the contemporary format, which is generally um, the okay. format now is right, – I mentioned the slug line. You, the first paragraph or the first couple of sentences that you want to have describe the room that you're in. So that way the audience knows, okay, if you I'm set, in... You set the scene, basically. Right. Yeah. And then you want to go into, okay, who the character is, or, you know, uh, if what they're wearing is relevant to the story, then you, 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 you describe what that is. But then you start to do center formatting to, uh, to, to delineate character talking in their dialogue. Yeah, which is somewhat similar in theatrical writing as well. It was kind of borrowed from that, but modified slightly. Right. And it makes sense that they would yeah. borrow it from the theater act, theater scripts, because now it's like, okay, now that we're getting more in depth here and there's a lot of other plates yeah. that we have to keep spinning, why not just borrow from what we already know? And right. to be fair, as we said in our last podcast, is that a lot of the writers from theater started to jump ship and go into the movies because that was the hot thing. Sure. You know? The, the play um, Once in a Lifetime uh, by Kaufman and Hart uh, that's a great show. illustrates this whole transition that's going on in the – it's a satire of it, but it's very much oh, indicative yeah, yeah, yeah. of what's going I mean, on For those that don't know, I mean, you should check it out. It's a great show, but it's basically about three vaudevillian actors and writers who who basically make their way out to L.A. because one of them is is thought to be like this – well, they go out there to try to make money and try to get into the talkie scene because now that's that's what people are clamoring for. Right. And it's two guys and a girl. Uh, and while on the train, they meet a producer and they kind of get embroiled in this this whole comedic, you know. Um, it's very uh, funny, yeah. Uh, what's the uh, uh, Shakespeare play that people use as a reference? It's, um, I don't know. Uh, anyways, they get embroiled into Two a, Gentlemen of Verona? Yeah, no, something to that effect. Anyways. Yeah. It's not so much important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyways, they get embroiled in this comedic thing. Yeah. It's Kaufman and Hart. Yeah. You know, it's very lighthearted. And there's a very funny contrast to that, too, because you've got the main characters who are these vaudevillian actors who really don't have a whole lot of experience writing, getting into the business, and you know, getting in Hollywood and moving around all the stuff. And then you have this other subplot character, Lawrence Vale, who is this critically acclaimed playwright who can't get in a meeting to see the same producer. Oh my God, I forgot about him. Yeah, and he just, and he just like, like goes nuts. Sitting in the waiting room. Exactly. And it's the point where like, he's been sitting down so much that he has to have a, when he, after he, he has a complete psychotic episode. And finally, wherever he goes now, he has to have a pillow because his, his, his rear end is hurting so much from having to sit, sit and, and just his, wait. Yeah, exactly. And uh, the more you think about it, it's like, that's such a beautiful juxtaposition that you have going on. It's like, you have the writer who, who is really good at what you do but can't get work yet? You have the person who just falls into it, and that was so indicative of the time period that well, yeah, people I were think just it, jumping into the. At that point, medium. I mean, we're talking you know twenties and thirties at that point, right? I mean, like the actual transition into uh, a more contemporary script building is around nineteen thirty three, right? I mean, talkies jazz singers nineteen twenty seven, nineteen twenty eight, yeah, right. You know, a couple of years after that, in the early nineteen thirties, we're dealing with now even more. Sound and and at that point, if you remember from the previous podcast about you know early movies, I think it was Cinematron Prime, right? Yeah, right. I think it was the title. Um, you're dealing with 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 movies that are literally being churned out once a week. Yeah, you know, you've got I think just one studio that's literally just spitting them out, boom, 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 boom. Yeah, and because they're doing that, right? They have to have a cavalcade of writers to to sit there and create this stuff. They they just subjected them to ungodly conditions, like very much sweatshop like conditions. Actors were working eighteen hours a day. Actors were sometimes being being fed, fed barb- uppers and downers exactly to keep them working. I can't imagine what their screenwriters. Had I to mean, go 
I mean, look at Judy Garland. I mean, she, that that was her that was her diet. It was a steady diet of uppers and downers with maybe some orange juice as a chaser. And that's unfortunately ultimately led, led to, to her demise. Exactly. Yeah. Know? And I mean, you can I'm only imagine that that's what the writers were going through too. And I mean, but you also have to imagine too is that in order for them to churn out the multiple amounts of movies that they were doing there was more than one writer attached to every project. It wasn't just a single writer. Yeah, it, was a, it was a team. It was generally. not about authorship at that point. It was it, just whoever can help create the story exactly. and will give you credit whoever did that. Right. You know, so there was no ownership and there was no organization. But at this time, and I think you, you mentioned this before we started, is that we start to see a union, unionization of like the Producers Guild and the Directors Guild. And Well, yeah, in the early 19... As we're talking about 1927, right? If we dial it back a little bit to the, the turn between the teens and the basically post-World War One, mm-hmm. um, you're, you're talking about a very progressive movement that's going on in this, in this country or in the United States. And, uh, you know, you had the industrial age in the late 19th century where you had pretty much, we were able to mechanize anything, right? We were able to produce all this great content right. and people, are, and basically what film is trying to do is trying to take the industrial approach to creating f- film content. Edison was trying to do it and, you know, kind of did some shady yeah, things. Yeah. He, he had a, he had a very, uh, you know, uh, conveyor belt, Right. attitude about the, the whole process exactly and so you also got like mayer and warner and you, you know the names who actually are the people who started the studios we know of today you know um fox right were all named after real people and i am shocked yeah right um but what ends up happening is i mean at various points in times because of the labor movement in the early 20th century You've got people saying, we don't have to put up with this. We can organize. We we have rights to collective bargaining. Right. Right. So because of the AFL-CIO movement, or the foundation of that, uh, anybody who who unionizes can become a subdivision of the AFL, the American Federation of Labor. So uh, basically, you're right. Like in theater in 1919, there was tons of protests about uh, theater actors being forced to provide their own costumes and not getting decent compensation. Theater actors originally weren't paid until the show uh, opened, and if the open was if the show was a flop, you didn't get your money, right? So but the actors producers did exactly, i.e., Mel Mel Brooks. So the things we take for granted today, right? Being paid for rehearsals, not having to provide your own costume, or if you do, you're being paid to provide your own costume, or you're being paid for the costume. Um, health benefits; those are all things that happened after the organization of Actors Equity and progressive strikes from there, and pretty much that goes through with a lot of actors and writers. There's been so many Actors Guild and Writers Guild strikes for film, uh, numerous ones throughout the 20th century. And you're right, basically, in the it was 1940s, was it, or 1930s, that the WGA formed? Uh, around 1954, actually. 1954. So really, but the original start, one was in yeah, the 1920s. Yeah, it was the, screen, the Screenwriters Guild, which formed in 1921 by a group of about 10 screenwriters. Right. So this is right on the tail end of, of Actors Equity. And, they were, and they, were, they were basically... Uh, they were upset because they were getting wage rejections announced by major film studios. So basically, as the film studios are making boatloads of money from putting out movies, uh, they're not giving the writers anything. And the, these ten screenwriters basically said, "You know, what, enough of this. Like we, we, without us, there would be nothing, right? So let's let let's take a stand and let's do something about it." Uh, so they filmed the, the Screenwriters Guild uh, in the group affiliated with the Authors Guild in the 1933 and became uh, and began representing TV writers. So, uh, to, for those playing the the home game, uh, Screenwriters Guild was strictly for for film, and then the Authors Guild was for television. And so, I imagine radio too. Imagine radio, and yeah, yeah, and so they around 1954. 
they uh, they started to to mold together, and they created the Writers Guild of America East and West, and it's basically covering the entire United States uh, and any writer that's underneath it, and basically just helps protect them uh, from you know any sort of foul play uh, as far as you know being slighted of money or being cheated out of a certain uh, accreditation now right. now as part of the guild it is required that if Brian and I were to write a script together right we would be accredited by the WGA as as being the the main writers for that script so yeah, as long as like our work was the, the over half of what was the final film we are attributed as the writers exactly yeah which exactly. is also how the studios will allow for someone to do rewrite work on it but not get credited Right, and that's that. why that's why you'll see on screenplays, um, you know, story uh, by somebody sometimes. Yeah, generally when you see like four names, uh, if you see you know Brian and Brian Moriarty and David McGuire, and there's the actual you know word and written out, that means that they were a writing duo, right? But if you see our names and then an ampersand. And then two other people's names, and that means generally that Brian and I were the first draft writers, and we had enough accreditation on the actual script that the studio said, "Okay, you're gonna, you're still gonna get your your your, your cut of the pie." Uh, but really, the people who came after us, after the ampersand, they were the guys that wrote the final script that's actually being transformed into the film that you're seeing on television on the on the actual right, which screen. Which at times can be wildly different than the original. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, the the fact is, is that as as writers, right? Like you, being a writer when you first started, and I guess we can kind of jump in here, is that uh, you your first couple of gigs. I mean, you're you're more likely. I, I heard this on a podcast, and check out if you're really interested in this stuff. If you want to get into more depth, check out a really great podcast called um, Script Notes by John August. By, by yes. John August and Craig Mazin, um, two really in the in in the industry. Uh, writers who every week dive into things that screenwriters would like and they talk a lot about the actual business side of things not just like how do i write a scene no they go like okay when you actually finish your script like how does the actual mechanics of the business work and it's very fascinating to listen to because you you're you're talking about a place where you could be brian could be hired to become uh you know a a um a rewriter and have his entire career built on just doing rewrites for scripts you know, he may never have any sort of spec scripts, and spec scripts basically mean um, uh, speculative scripts, scripts that he may want to have be written. So if Brian had if Brian had an original idea that he wanted to write, he could use that and say, "Hey, here's my original idea. Would you want to make it?" That's technically called a spec script. Yeah, you pretty much write it for the sake of writing it, and then you hope to sell it at some point. At some point, yeah. right? Um, but yeah, I mean, doing rewrite work. Uh, is generally, from what I've what I've heard, is is generally the way that you start to make your money to begin with. Right, right. They'll give you, or the studios will throw you all these kind of crappy scripts and say, "Hey, make something out of this." Right, because the process for a writer is that if I wanted to get into the industry, I have to have at least three or four scripts of my own in my back pocket, and those are literally just for show. And that's for me to go to an agent and say, "Hey." This is my capability. This is my, my writing style is. Do you like it? If someone says, yeah, they do like it, then what they're going to do is they're going to say, okay, I got a client who is pretty good, You know, who would actually do really well with this kind of material. Like, Let's hire him, right? And the studio says, okay, great. Here's this new comedy that we want you to do. Like, The first draft is awful. You know, Try to fix it up. You know, and, and you will likely be given scripts that are needing punch-ups, 
uh, or you're going to be needing scripts that need some sort of, um, you know, remolding. Um, but the problem is, right, is like you can't just, you know, scrap everything and go from ground zero yeah. up. You have to keep a lot of the right. stuff in. And the whole reason these scripts even got there in the first place is that you can set up a pitching session with someone from the studio mm-hmm. to pitch your idea for a movie or to hand your script over. And, I mean, you can submit a script to a studio if you want, but they probably won't read it um, just because it's not the, the process usually for how it gets done. There is somebody whose job is to read scripts that get submitted to the studio. Yes, there is. Um, and they may be crappy, but if every so often one of them has something something about that script that is maybe worth pursuing, and those are the ones that go to the other writers. They grade it on uh, basically if they basically grade it with uh, with three with three tiers. If you're in the bottom tier, then they have no desire of reading it. Like they'll read the first ten pages and they'll say this is crap, go away. Uh, then there's a second tier that says. The script, the story is meh, but the writing style is actually really good. Like, let's keep this guy in file. Maybe he's got something else, right? That's what you kind of want to shoot for. The ultimate, like, jackpot is like, oh my is God, like, where did this right, guy come like, from? This is Goodwill Hunting Part 2. Let's make it. Why is not made yet? Exactly. You know? Yeah. So, I mean, there's it, it's, it's a hard, it, like we said before, it's a hard business to break into because you have to have a lot of discipline. And that's why the WGA exists, right? right. Other than these conditions... The other thing that we haven't talked about yet is, let's say you write your television episode or your movie, even particularly for movies, right? Mm-hmm. Movies aren't just about theatrical releases anymore like they were in the 1920s. There's a home video release. There's a there's uh, television dis- there's release. There's foreign distribution. There's, foreign distribution, exactly. There's, there's television replays. Digital downloads. Digital downloads. Downloads. Yeah, now there's digital downloads. Right. I mean, we could do an entire episode on what the state of Hollywood is right now. And the state of Hollywood is that it's pretty much, to, to give you a good example, is that it's where the music industry was when Napster and MP3 started coming out. You know, where, where the music industry was like, we don't know how to do this. Like, this is this is new and this is going to break us. And it broke them for a little bit, right? Because everybody was downloading music illegally before they started buying. And that's when well, thankfully things... thankfully, Apple, when they developed right, the iTunes that's, store, that's right? when iTunes came out. And then we have things like Pandora, Spotify, right. things like that Napster still exists, but Napster became a paid service that you would get. Right, right. which is so funny. Be- yeah. Such an ironic thing to have happened to him. Yeah. Um, but that that's where the movie industry is right now, right? Because you've got video on demand. You've got Netflix producing its own content. Right now, they're producing television shows, but... It, it would be stupid not to think that at some point Netflix is going to produce its own movie. Sure, exactly. You know, you've got uh, Hulu doing things. You've got Amazon. You've got now Yahoo is getting into the television game. I mean, right. Yahoo, a company that should have died when the bubble burst. And the only reason it stuck around was because its main people were really good at they, investing. They became a media company instead. Well, no, no, but no, no. They, 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 they were so good with their investments that yeah. when the bubble burst, they had enough cushion to protect themselves. Oh, sure. Right? Even when Google was like, get out of here. And Yahoo's like, no, no, no. We're still here. Now they've got community season six, and now they're building out a media center. Like, that company should have died years ago, but because of smart decisions, it's still around. Sure, exactly. You know, and that, that's where the movie industry is, is and that's where the Writers Guild of America right. is. But the, the reason why I was bringing that up too right. is that when once you write that that's great you get paid your original base salary what about residuals and that's the thing royalties right right every time a movie or tv show is downloaded on itunes because you paid money for it a portion of that goes to writer now even if it's free right like even if you watch it again on say you watch a rerun of parks and recreation on uh the, the esquire channel mm-hmm. right that's in syndication at this point right, right. When something gets syndicated, you know, you basically you're buying the shows, the channel buys it, and the advantage is the studio's already made the money off of the show, so the... the um, but for every time the episode airs... Every, every time it airs, the 
station that gets it takes a little bit of the money off of their own advertisement re- revenue. They get to keep most of it because it's a different percentage, but then they have to send some of it back right. to the studio who created the TV show or the movie, and then they... They give... attribute the the, proper, the appropriate amount to the writer of that episode. Exactly. And and how many times they get paid versus how many times they actually... I don't know the gets... math on that and how that's all calculated. It depends but... on the contract, basically. Yeah. But that's that's where the that's where the gray area comes in. Right. I mean, so in 1988, from about March to uh, yeah, March to about August, there was you know uh, a, a writer strike. Right, and the yeah. guild was the one that basically determines these things. These are saying that no writer should be able to do a project without these residuals, these royalties being set in place. But then the writers strike back and they say, "Look, guys, like in 1988, right? That's when like VHS. Remember VHS kids? That's that's what we had prior to Blu-rays, right?" Like right. VHS and foreign home distribution. Video yeah, now home a... video was a thing where it's like right. movies and television were on were on videotape, and now these writers are like, "Whoa, hold on, my work's going out there, and you're you're getting sales off of these videotapes. Where's my cut? Like that's my work." Right. So they went on strike for that, and then again, almost twenty years later, there was the two thousand seven two thousand eight strike for what was happening with digital media. Exactly, and which the, is the unfortunate internet, yeah. because a lot of great media was destroyed by both of these strikes yeah most notably television shows like pushing daisies and um the 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 death of superman movie and the justice league movie that was supposed to come out many years ago you know these were things that were in the pipeline that were literally ready to shoot and hundreds then, of millions of dollars were spent they were they had sets built costumes built actors right had done prep work and then god because during the strike obviously you cannot work you can't do any writing and the trouble with justice league was that they they had basically they just need to do some final rewrites in the script for the actual and they the actors couldn't or the writers couldn't do that right yeah and so the thing is is that these writers are now fighting for a lot of people are like well they're being greedy it's like no they're not being greedy the thing is is that this is their work i mean how would you as as a person who who says that that's being greedy okay let's say you create this thing right you create this 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 work of art and then you, you, someone takes it and goes, you know, I'm going to do is I'm going to create re- replications of that. And I'm going to give it out to a bunch of people and I'll give you a cut of the pie, right? Now it's a physical form of art. But now, now there's digital forms that, that, are, that, that this main person is selling. And that person's like, well, <laughs> I, I own that now. Like I'm giving you a cut, but, you know, I'm sending a digital. Like I can do whatever I want. It's like, no, you can't. Like that, that, that's still mine. That is my right. name on that. The expression of it is still protected by the DWGA. And right. in this case, like if it's a painting, you know, it's it's probably in the Library of Congress too. And you can submit a script to the Library of Congress right. as well. Right, but, but, but the point I'm yeah. making is that right. these writers are fighting for the fact that now that the media is changing and now that the game has been changed, or rather that the playing field has been changed, I right. should say, you know, things are going to get much, much more... Sure. I mean, they, they fought for it. They won. They got what they wanted, which was DVD sales and, and video on demand sales and, and different distributions. Yeah. Um, but now we got to start thinking about where's the future going, right? Because now we've got video on demand and we've got movies that are being made on video on demand. We've got movies that are being directly streamed, you know, th- television shows like Netflix that are being pre- like created. We don't know a lot about what's happening right now. Right. So it's a very interesting time to be someone who, like myself, who wants to get into this business yeah. because. If we jump in now, you're, you're you're kind of jumping in at the point of like when the when the rebuilding process is happening, right? You know, because now you can be a part of that group that says, okay, well, yeah, yeah, yeah let's let's start doing yeah. it this way. So. And when it comes down to the reason why these things are so important is the reason why something hasn't already happened with Netflix is that the contract the WGA has with the Producers Guild and other 
organizations hasn't expired yet, right? So the contract is set. Usually it's for like, I want to say 10 years, something around that. We're that period. close. Maybe, maybe even five years. And when it's done, then they go up for renegotiation. And they do that because of things that change in the industry, right? And like you said, we've had a revolution in the last five years right. with at-home content, and that's going to change the game a lot. We probably will see another strike because the PGA might not want to give as much you know, of a, of a cut. I just predicting. Cause I, usually I, I would, they don't I would want concur to. with you. I think that's going to happen. I think with every new shift of change, I mean, there's going to be some sort of, you know, Hey, you know, we, we should be accredited and we should be compensated for this. That's what every labor strike's been always and, been about. And that's exactly money, it. Not wanting to give up more money, you know, to the and, other people. And basically what that means is that the WGA and all the presidents and the vice presidents and the treasurers and all the people who are kind of the, the, the main heads of that will then be the, 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 the liaisons between the writers and the producers guild and so on and so forth. And it's going to carry on for a couple of weeks and we'll be without new television shows and have to watch reruns. And that's fine. You know what I mean? The, the, the thing is, is that, what this all boils down to is that without the writer, we don't have content. I mean, sure, you've got reality shows, but let's be real, right? Reality shows are bunk. They even have writers for that, too. They have writers for... They, ha- um, they have writers for reality shows. Think about that. That is ridiculous. If you're looking at... If you're watching The Bachelor or The Bachelorette, that is highly fabricated content. It may be based off of somewhat in reality, but a lot... It's... what And what it does... For the people who are writing, creating content, whether it's the the writer or the actor, is you're now depriving a trained, skilled professional of their work. This is why I have a hard time watching reality shows, a game show maybe like a, like The Amazing Race. That's a little bit different because there's an objective, and yeah, of course there's some sculpting that takes place. But when you watch a reality show, reality show the bomb of the line cost it comes to make. And oh, this is is maybe hundred thousand dollars an episode, right? Which you know, compared- Maybe, depending upon what you're doing. Right. Um, and that sounds like a lot of money. It's not. It's chump change for the companies that are doing this. Whereas if you do a scripted content, it's probably a couple million dollars per episode yeah. to do. And so it costs a lot of money. I mean, for a 24-episode season, that's $50 million you're talking yeah. about, right? To invest. That's as much as it costs to make a now medium-budget Yeah, medium-budget movie, yeah. Um, it's, I mean, it's a huge investment. I mean, the thing is, though, is that you you need writers, you yeah. know? And the thing is, it's not to say that writers are better than producers or better than directors. They, they, they're all on the same level. You know, the writers, they, they get the ball rolling, with generally with the producers. I mean, let's take it from a Marvel perspective, since we already mentioned um, Gal- Guardians of the Galaxy, right? That's a collaborative effort. You've got the producers of, of Marvel saying, hey, we want to build this world. You guys are our writers. Go build it. Okay, great. We like what you're doing. Great. This is the director. You guys collaborate. We're collaborating. Great. Okay, now let's go make our thing. And then, you know, a couple of years later, we've got the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So right. to wrap it up, basically, all I'm saying is that it's a very de- it's a very deliberate, it's a very uh, uh, strategic and very hard job. But it's such a if you're a creative person, if you like to tell stories, this might be something to explore, and this might be something that you might want to to do at some point in your life. Because like me, it, it, it's a way to to get these ideas out of my head. I have fun doing it. You may have fun doing it, and you're a part of something much larger than yourself. And sure. that in itself is amazing. Absolutely, yeah. And folks, what we've we're kind of giving you tonight is a bit of the essence of our other podcast, Nerds on Film. We talk, we talk these. Sorry, I shouted a lot. It's okay. We do a lot of these uh, impassioned discussions about the art form, but it's important. I mean, yes, there's a history, there's a historical context 
to it. We talked a little bit about that, and we talked a little bit about that with our acting episode last week, too. But the importance is understanding that these are these are forms of art that have been around for millennium, or for millennia, I should say. Yeah. And they are what make life interesting. Storytelling, whatever form it is, theater, novels. Greek mythology. Right, Greek mythology, comic books. They make life worth living. You're right. Whether it's the exp- you taking in the expression, you creating the expression. So talking about a little bit of the history of how that's evolved through the medium of film, I think it was important. Um, and if you want more discussions of these levels, please check out our Nerds on Film podcast, which you can look on at the iTunes store. Um, and also give us some feedback. In fact, let's um, let's read a little quick little bit of feedback while we when we have a chance. Agreed. This week in listener feedback, uh, we have a couple quick ones. Oh, actually, one quick one and one longer one. One's from Michelle. Uh, and it says American History Month and uh, dessert. Uh, she just wanted to say, uh, I just wanted to let you know I'm stoked about July having a U.S. history emphasis. as That's my favorite history topic. Also, apple pie may not be American, but German chocolate cake surely is. This is from actually a while ago, but uh, we wanted to, I don't think we ever got to it, so I wanted to make sure we, we read it out. Uh, thank you, Michelle. She's Your selections and dessert are, uh, are absolutely amazing. Yeah. Now, this one we got just last week from Vincent, Vincent from Paris, as he says. Uh, from and Paris. what from Paris? Sure. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this was in comment to part two of World War One. Uh, he said, "Hi, all. Just finished finish listening to the World War One podcast, part two. Uh, and he talked a lot about the. Uh, I'm going to paraphrase here, but he talked. He was very upset by when we were talking about the feedback relating to." Uh, the perception of Romanians in in Europe, because we we mentioned that one person said, "Isn't that racist?" And the person that she was talking to said, "That it's not racism; it's experience." And um, I was kind of offended by that too. Not that the person was saying it, but that that person had that perception. Mm-hmm. Um, and Vincent says, "No, just talking about it from the French perspective, uh, Romanians is oftentimes just kind of a com- uh, a nickname. It's kind of like the word gypsy mm-hmm. is for the same kind of people." Uh, and the, the term Gitanos in Spain is used in similarly, or Roms in French in Italian. And uh, it's, it's inf- you know, we talked about this with our socially responsible episode about the Roma. It's sad because you basically you take the, the actions of people who are taking advantage of others, and you now attribute it to someone's ethnic background. And that's wrong. That's just flat out wrong. That That is in of itself racism. Whether we want to acknowledge it or not, it is, and that's something we just we cannot tolerate in our world anymore. We are we are seventy years past World War II, past the atrocities that took place in the Holocaust, and as a global community, we have learned nothing from it. We still have atrocities that happened in the Sudan. We've had atrocities that took place in East Eastern Europe in Kosovo. Where there is still strong anti-Semitic arguments in the Middle Ukraine, East, Russia, and Ukraine, Russia, Gaza, and Russia and Gaza. I have a friend who's a Ukrainian Jew who said she felt anti-Semitism in England just last year. Really? In a in a city that's very... In London, in a very culturally diverse city. Folks, it's everywhere. In Though we've improved as a society, it's important to know that it's still out there and that we can't tolerate it. We can't accept it. We can't bat an eyelash and say, okay, well, that's just their experience experience or not you can't let that make broad generalizations about an entire people it's not fair and it doesn't bring us together it drives us apart so that's my my preachy spiel for the for this week um guys he got out of soapbox and everything it's it's doing i'm stepping down right now um 
and you know, and and I apologize if you everyone ever ever because we've gotten some feedback at times that we are didactic about that kind of stuff. And to be totally honest, we don't care because not that, not that we don't value your feedback, but these issues are important enough that I don't care if I sound preachy. Uh, if it makes if it changes somebody's mind once to say, okay, you know what? Maybe you're right. Maybe I do need to rethink how I, I treat people or perceive people around me. Then I've done my job, and that's what this whole podcast is about: to educate and inform and empower people to live better lives. We just do it by talking about stuff that happened in the past. So. Um, if you want to give us more feedback, we, we encourage it. You can do so by going to nerdonomy.com or by hitting us up on our social media at Facebook and Twitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and still Dave, working on that Instagram. Still working on Instagram. Uh, and Dave, tell us what, you, what else you can do when you go to Yeah, while you're there, you can also, if you feel it in your hearts and in your wallet, uh, you can um, donate some money to us. Um, there is a lovely little donate button that you can click on. No donation is too small. Uh, all the proceeds go to Nerdonomy to help us, you know, with our uh, building by giving us a legitimate roof. Uh, also helping us with further projects or future projects that we have, uh, be it our video initiative or what Eric and I are cooking up. <laughs> um, or if you want to do, uh, donate money to us and have fun doing it. There is an Audible uh, link on the side of the website. Go ahead and give that a click. When you do that and you sign up for an Audible uh, free trial, 30-day free trial, uh, the, the the money comes to us. And basically, you help us and you get to help your brain expand Indeed. by listening to a book. And if you're going, what is this clicking thing? I can't do it. It's too much work. Please, someone help me. You can go to audibletrial.com slash nerdonomy and you can also uh, help us participate through that too. You still have to type. So I guess typing is... I won't, won't get what, into that. What's worse, typing or clicking? You decide. Yeah. Um, if if you are devoid of technological savvy, how are you listening to this podcast? That's all I'm wondering. You guys can probably figure it out. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. You uh, can type us even if you wanted to. Anyway, uh, it's that time, nerds. So until we meet again, stay nerdy and tune into us next week. Same nerd time, same nerd channel. Nerdonomy.com. Farewell. Later. believe it's gone oh my god i think i'm gonna hyperventilate oh okay dave oh god I, wait, wait i've been through this i've been through uh, this okay ready here we yeah. go breathe in and breathe in and breathe in breathe uh. in very good